Hello, folks. Welcome back to the RF Factor. This is episode 19. In short order, we're going to hear from my good friend, Mr. Neil Shuley. But before we introduce him, um, you might take a look if you're if you're looking if you're watching us on say YouTube, you're going to see that Pete looks a little different today. Um, if you're not watching us, you'll hear uh, in short order that he sounds different. Pete's on vacation. God bless him. Uh, although he lives in Southern California, so I think every day is a vacation. But uh, I think he would uh, beg to differ with me on that. But we're fortunate enough to have George Belsky sign on with us tonight as a guest uh, host. And you might remember George because he was in episode three of the RF Factor. We really enjoyed our conversation with him. Uh, we, we learned a lot about leadership through history. Uh, if you have not listened to that, I suggest you do. It was, was outstanding. And I'm sure, George, you filling in today is going to be outstanding as well. But um, George, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, Ray. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Oh, look, looking forward to it, folks. Uh, George and I had the opportunity to work together. Uh, in law enforcement in New Jersey, where George was the SAC special agent in charge of the ATF. Uh, prior to that, he was uh, with the military. He's a West Pointer, which is uh, goes pretty big in my eyes. So, uh, and now George works with the government again as a, a leadership uh, consultant, and he's he's doing some marvelous things in uh, the federal law enforcement training, as well as in uh, many other projects that he has going around the nation. So we're fortunate, George, that you actually had the opportunity to come on with us today. Uh, it's it's uh, my pleasure. Always, always good to catch up with you uh, and Pete, although Pete's not here. Uh, luckily, you don't have to change the headline because my middle name is Peter. So uh, <laughs> we have that in common. Well, very good. And you certainly don't look nervous, so this is great. <laughs> yeah. Now, this other guy that's coming on, I don't know if you can ever get him nervous. He is the quintessential Marine. Um, got to meet him several years ago uh, on the beach, and this guy is uh, super talented in many ways. I think I was telling you earlier that I'm never sure which, which Neil I'm going to get. Is it going to be the Marine? Is it going to be the family man or is it going to be the rugby star? And I uh, can't wait to hear about his, uh, his rugby episodes lately. Cause uh, here's a guy that is, and he'll tell us his age when he gets on maybe, uh, but he's still at it. And that's quite impressive. But without further ado, let me bring him on. Neil, how are you? Doing very well. And nice to meet you, George. Thank you, Ray, for having me. Oh, back at you. Yeah, I was actually hoping you'd have your rugby gear on right now as we were talking. <laughs> I've got my current sponsor, Kelly's Irish Pub. Is that close enough? That's that's fine. That's fine. Hey, I remember um, visiting you in uh, South Carolina. You had a, a billet at uh, the Citadel. And I remember you couldn't meet in the morning because you had this crazy workout regime that you'd follow every day religiously. Um, and unless I was going to come to the gym and roll around with you, 
Okay. I forgot that piece of it too, George. He's uh, judo and all sorts of uh, uh, martial arts combative stuff. Unless I was going to come roll around with you, you said I couldn't meet you till uh, mid-morning. How's that regime doing for you? The combatives is on hold, at least temporarily. Not a whole lot of opportunity in my current travels that have presented themselves, but you know, it, it's always lurking under the, the surface somewhere. <laughs> Interesting, though, you mentioned the billet I had at the Citadel. I was the professor of naval science at the time, and that meant I owned all of the Navy and Marine Corps options that were going to get commissioned. And I had this odd philosophy that if you're going to wear the uniform, the cloth of the nation, then you ought to espouse to some degree of warrior ethos. And it didn't matter to me one way or the other if you were going to go on and be a surface nuclear warfare officer or you're going to be a communications officer in the Marine Corps. You ought to have experienced interpersonal violence to some degree. And since I was the boss, not too many <laughs> people had the ability to challenge the, uh, the training curriculum that I designed for them. Combatives was a, a mandatory requirement. Wow. Yes. Incredible. That's excellent. Oh. Not um, everybody agrees with that. Hey, hey George, uh, first of all, you being from West Point, the fact that your name's George Peter, did they ever refer to GP as general purpose? <laughs> uh, no, I had some other nicknames, but uh, no, but uh, well, that brings back memories. But you, you being from West Point, do you remember Lieutenant General Hurtling? Uh, I recognize the name. Former Force Com and Tradoc, I think Deputy Commander Three Star. But it, it, interesting, though, how people in the military can have such differing opinions on the value of of warrior skills. Um, and I'm not going to make too much of it, but he, he wrote about it at length, and I had discussions with him at length. He did not believe that combatives, jiu-jitsu, martial arts of any kind that were a fundamental tool for training a military. And yeah, granted, he had three stars and I never got anywhere near that. But uh, interesting, though, that you have people at such senior levels who have such vastly different opinions on the value of that training. Uh, I've had law enforcement leaders uh espouse the same thing and say, you know, there was no need for, you know, boxing. There was no need for other than the, the very, very basic defensive tactics. Um, and it, I was always appalled by that, uh, that aspect of it. If, uh, if you're in law enforcement, if you're in the military, uh, when it comes right down to it, I know the Marine Corps, uh, teaches the ethos of every Marine's a rifleman, but history is replete with those in the trains, those in combat support or service support arenas being forced to the uh, pointy end of the spear. And if they're not groomed for that, the, the results will be devastating. So to, to deny that, I think is, uh, I think it's uh, abhorrent, but uh, again, my personal opinion, again, I, I was a defensive tactics instructor at the ATF uh, National Academy for a number of years. So everything from uh, the Mad Monkey Ninja Chinese Kung Fu Death Touch um, 
up to the application of you know the firearm um, to solve uh, to solve a problem, you have to be able to know that. Um, th- there's no there's no two ways about that. If you want something in between rolling over your back and providing your belly and going into orbit and nuking, you need a spectrum of ability to respond, even on a personal level. And if you don't have any tools, your options are roll over and die or shoot. And most applications we see short of an actual combat zone are not a do not give you the option of a successful ending if you if you bring out your gun and shoot anybody at all, especially in any of our peacekeeping missions. So if you don't have the tools, you're going to have a very hard time succeeding. The I I agree a hundred percent. What I what I found in my experience is the folks who have that grounding uh, in that skill set. They also have more confidence and so they don't have to go to that um right away Uh, what i've always found is officers and agents that are not comfortable in their uh physical skill sets they're the folks who are going to ramp it up because they're not confident in being able to handle things at a lower level and and so i think that I think that ties into it uh, a great deal. Yeah, I'm not going to derail Ray's show with uh, with five or six hours of talking about jujitsu and combatives or my personal uh, last several years in the military with special operations combatives. So scenarios and vignettes geared towards real life, real world operations that things did not go well. So you come back you you work out ways to fix it um the other reason that i couldn't meet ray that morning is not just the military the, uh, the combatives training that i was doing in the morning but ray didn't want to get in the pool and do underwater rugby with me so <laughs> uh very true <laughs> hey uh just to put a finer point uh, uh on what both of you've said is what i found in the law enforcement arena is so often when we bring people into a, a training scenario, and, and, and certainly this is, this is good in terms of the character of the people that we have that are coming on the job, but many of them have never been in a, in a physical altercation. And to place them under that stress load, I think is super important because we want to be able to teach them that they can survive. And I think that both of you guys are are sort of discussing that why there isn't important for that uh, that piece to be able to think through that kind of uh, what I would say psychological disturbance on on one's character at a given point. What, what are your thoughts on that, Neil? I'm not exactly sure what you mean by psychological disturbance on one's character. Uh, again, punched in the face. Okay. <laughs> that is the most artistic, articulate, <laughs> creative way of putting that. Yes, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% agreeing. I, I would also say that there's a vast difference between a generic program that, for instance, the Marine Corps uses, McMath, Marine Corps Martial Arts Program, which is designed to introduce 
a 200,000 person fighting force to basics and something when you get to the Marine Corps Special Operations Command or anywhere else in SOCOM, the Special Operations Command, where you really need a distinctive higher level of ability to operate um, in that threat where not only do you need to be able to respond or deliver that kind of violence, but you're, you're doing it with 80 pounds of kid on and you don't have a 30, 100 man, thousand man unit at your disposal to give you that warm, comfortable uh, feeling of having people on your left or right. So significant difference between training entry level folks, giving them an introduction to it and an advanced level of proficiency that I think at the Special Operations Command, every single person going down range has to have. George? I, I agree 100%. And um, we know uh, what, what's, what's amazing to me about living in the 21st century is we now know the science that backs up what we've known for centuries that have been passed down from from century to century, right? Everybody who's been in the military and law enforcement somewhere through their training career has heard the the phrase, uh, you will not rise to the occasion, you will sink to the lowest level of training that you've mastered, or you will not rise to your expectations, you will sink to the lowest level of training you've mastered. Well, that goes back 600 BC to uh, a Greek named Archilagus, uh, who actually was one of the first recorded poets to write Niambic pentameter, but he also was a Greek hoplite. He fought in the Thracian Wars, and that's one of his premises. Now we've we've know that in 2021. So when Wuray talks about and and you talk about the ability to to work inside that environment. We know that under moderate amounts of stress, the the first thing that goes out the window is our ability to reasonably think, right? Critical thinking goes out the window, um, and you're going to sink to those things that you can do with very, very minimal thought. Well, if you have to think about how you're going to respond to getting your face beat into a canoe, um, you've already lost that. So all of that. Uh, ties in together. And I think that's why, um, at least in my belief, the first time an officer or a soldier or a Marine uh, meets somebody um, and actually tries to hurt them, it shouldn't be when it happens for real. It should be in the training environment where it's control. So that, that's been my experience. Hey, Neil, I told you he was an historian of leadership. <laughs> Thracian poet. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> but there's a psychological aspect to this that, and I'll use the combatives as, as an example. Even though I had been in combat a couple of times already, I've experienced that successfully because I'm still here. The first time I went to a jiu-jitsu tournament of any size and scale, I went up to New York, and there's probably 5,000 people in the stands. And I had already had 
hundreds of individual mono mono fights in training under my belt. So theoretically, I, I had enough reps that it shouldn't have gotten to me. But it's an environment thing too. And I remember the first time that they, they call your weight class and you go running down there and you get your, your adrenaline starts pumping, you start burning energy. And then you go stand in this pen for 45 minutes. Well, now you're cycling down through all this energy you just spent. You, you spent and then 45 minutes, they finally weigh you in. They're like, okay, go back to sit in the bleach. Wait a minute. I thought I was getting on the mat and going. <laughs> no. And then they, you sit in the, the bleachers for another and they call you back down to the pen. And all of a sudden that, that adrenaline spike starts going again. And this is, this is in a gym at a university in New York. This is not downrange in uniform with guns or bullets flying. You go through this cycle a few times. I, by the first time I got to my, and this is uh, a, you know, this is a national level championship. So it's the first time I've, I've gone on any kind of a, a stage. And I was not in the premier group of white belt or, or age group or anything, but I cycled through that adrenaline rush so many times. By the time I got to my first fight of the day, I was a spaghetti. I was already worn out. I, I, I made it through. But the management of the adrenaline, the management of the, the, your, your physical stamina and the man- management of your mental stamina, all different aspects of the same hole that have to be trained to. And, and for and that's in the in the in the competitive environment now now throw the the mix in of your downrange or you're on the street and um there's all of that that goes into it where uh where you're on that that two-way range uh and and it is for real and you throw that in and one of the things uh that I really admired about the Marine Corps martial arts program is that they were teaching, especially in the basic course, they were teaching the, uh, the techniques, they were teaching the physical skill set, but there was also, um, the ethical application that was tied into that. Uh, and Jack Hoban writes about that in both the ethical warrior and the ethical protector where he was involved in that program, again, a Marine infantry officer, you know, brought in by the commandant later to, to help to, to, to do that. I think that ties back to Neil, what you were talking about, that warrior ethos, that those things can't be separated, right? The, the ethical aspect, the moral aspect of, of doing that has to be tied in at all times. Yeah. We have this phrase that, I have a love-hate relationship with in the Marine Corps. It's called situational ethics. And by virtue of surviving the Marine Corps long enough to stick around and start being able to influence people on what I thought was important, I actually ran a a course for several years called uh, Ethics in Combat. And it uh, it was a counter to this idea that ethics is situational or situational ethics where uh, depending on what the circumstances are, your left or right or lateral limits, your moral compass might have some ambiguity or you know be malleable. And I, I absolutely fundamentally disagreed with that and spent a lot of time trying to reiterate to people that who you are is who you are. And there is no environment where you don't 
come home someday, look in a mirror and unown up and hold yourself accountable for, well, that was okay because, you know, I was in Columbia and, you know, the people we were fighting down there didn't have the same moral compass. So it didn't matter. No, there, there is yeah, no environment in which you are not responsible for comporting yourself appropriately. And that puts us at a disadvantage in some respects, but it's the way we have chosen and volunteered to abide and fight. Not easy. Hey, and Neil, uh, we have a mutual friend that introduced us and, you know, what has always been on his mind is uh, the two of us in, in certainly two different vocations, uh, you being with the military, I was with law enforcement and you know, where we were on September 11th and you know, what had transpired for both of our careers in the wake of 9-11. But ha- having said that, can you sort of tell us your story on how did you start off this, this journey as it relates to the military? Uh, and certainly thought leadership, because I know you like to read. I know you always have something uh, that you're, you're researching, but maybe you can give us a little background on how this all started for you. Well, <laughs> I'm mindful of pulling out a quote from Blazing Saddles, but I won't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, I, I actually went to New Mexico Military Institute, a two-year mili- Army military college, and was often running on a very short-lived Army career and made some uh, poor decisions, uh, primarily academically. Um, was very much enjoying rugby, skiing, sororities, and a few other things that didn't... I, I took my eye off the ball at one point there. So I had an Army start and which does work out for me later because the, the nice thing is that the Marine Corps and the Army do use the same manuals, uh, same equipment too. We just get it from them several years after it's been abused. But uh, <laughs> so three years in the Army kind of gave me uh, uh, insight that when it came to the tactics and the leadership side of things, I was doing okay. I, I just had a, a maturity issue and a growing up thing to do. Uh, both intellectually and uh, emotionally, and needed a reset. So three years into uh, my Army career, First Lieutenant Neil Shuley became Private Neil Shuley down at the Recruit Depot, which is in and of itself an amusing story. You would not imagine, you might be able to imagine what Marine Corps drill instructors do when they find an Army lieutenant standing on their yellow footprints. Uh, uh, At the end of it, I, I started off on a very good trajectory in the Marine Corps. I was the honor grad, and they said there's one choice. is You were either going to be the honor grad or you're going to be dead. I mean, you had those two options and nothing in the middle, um, and they thrashed the hell out of me. Um, but got me off and running. And literally for the next 10 years, I, I, I had such a head start on every course I was going to that you know, people look at the resume and it's like, wow. You know, your bio says, you know, you're on a ground, on a ground. Well, doesn't impress as much when you realize that uh, everybody else showing up at boot camp, you know, they're, they're getting asked what the rink or birthday is. And the captain looks at me and says, yeah, what's the maximum effective range of a mod dude? Like, well, nobody else in the entire course is going to know that. But <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, 
the trajectory I got started on uh, allowed me to take some shortcuts. I uh, went straight to force reconnaissance as an enlisted Marine, uh, three short years there. And the, the leadership was kind enough to steer me towards a commissioning program in the Marine Corps. Um, should have been a, a slog to finish my degree and then go second lieutenant, lieutenant captain, and then probably five, six years in, maybe get my way to a company command tour. I, Marine Corps kind of put a unique set of opportunities in front of me. And, and two years into my commission time in Marine Corps, I'm a company commander in Mogadishu. Um, so opportunities were presented that I had to uh, adapt to very quickly. I won't say that every single one of them was a resounding success. I think there were aspects of every single one of them that, uh, particularly when it came to leading the men, the Marines, I did exceptionally well. Um, there were times when I handled my peers better than others. And quite often, I didn't necessarily handle my superiors as, in, in as mature or professional a fashion as I always could. But uh, for the most part, it didn't derail the future opportunities for me. And so went from a horse reconnaissance background. This is before there were Marines in Special Operations Command. And just by virtue of timing, um, went on an external billet outside the Marine Corps, which found me uh, working as a paramilitary officer in Columbia for a year when 9-11 happened, which meant that I was, hell, I'd already been deployed for a year. So moving me from one theater to another was relatively simple. I went in very early into Afghanistan with the first teams and got another year there. And that's where our mutual friend started tracking our, our similar and different regards uh, trajectories after 9-11. And if Ross was a better cook, he probably would have been able to convince us to have written that book that he wants us to write by now. Um, for the record, Ross Ashley happens to be the most phenomenal cook any of us have ever oh, met. Oh, yes. And, and we have, uh, despite his influence, Ray and I have yet to produce that tome uh, that would kind of do a parallel trajectory. We had to outline, outline that here. Um, but anyway, back to the subject at hand. The, uh, the crux of it was after 9-11 and after I returned from Afghanistan, the, the Secretary of Defense um, started leaning heavily on both Special Operations Command and the Marine Corps to find a way to create a component inside SOCOM from the Marines. And I became integral in that for virtually the entire remainder of my career. Uh, so I went back to First Force Reconnaissance and then created the first Marine Special Operations Battalion. It was the same command, but once SOCOM had officially accepted a component from the Marine Corps, we redesignated the unit as part of SOCOM. And then I went back there as the commanding officer in charge of all of the special operations training. So it, interesting how history can sometimes set you up for success. And I'll, I'll use one anecdote to show you how things work out despite your, your best attempts. Otherwise, um, when I was a sergeant leaving First Force Reconnaissance Company as a young Marine, I made a list of all the billets I had to hold. If I was ever going to come back to First Force Reconnaissance Company as the commanding officer, um, the Marine Corps in their infinite wisdom never let me hold a single one of those billets. 
but I still went back as the last CO. And I technically, now Lieutenant General George Smith was the last CO, but I showed up in June of 2005, uh, 2006, as we were changing the unit over. And in October of 2006, uh, we became, First Force Reconnaissance Company became First Marine Special Operations Battalion. So the, the humor of it is, is that uh, maybe the Marine Corps actually knew what they were doing. Didn't hold a single one of the billets I had to hold, but yeah, still wound up where I wanted to be. So can't complain. That's a heck of a that's a heck of a uh, a ride. So you you retired uh, probably six months after I did because I retired from ATF in January of 2017, and and you were around June if I remember right. So. Um, we probably know several of the same folks because uh, uh, that that's uh, that's interesting. In in that career span, which is extremely impressive, um, what do you think is your? Uh, I won't say single because it, it, it'd be hard to do that, but what do you think are, are one of the most important leadership lessons that just got downloaded into your brain housing group and it's indelibly imprinted there? The first one I'll start with is how to set yourself up for success. And that is, you, know, you, you got to know your shit. Ray, can I say that? On your podcast, you you, you <laughs> just okay. did. You okay. just did. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so <sighs> I, I like to think of the the things that I did really well in leadership, or, or I could distill down into two things: presence and balance. Uh, but you, the effectiveness of my presence, I'll, I'll I'll expand on both of those. Expound on them a little further. But the effectiveness of my presence was predicated on the fact that I actually knew uh, my, pro- my profession at the level at which I was. Um, I, I got to admit, at one point in time, I had a battalion commander by the, by the name of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dunford. Might have heard of him. Before he went on. <laughs> um, and I was so, because I'm a retread. So by the time I'm a captain, I'm, I'm on my second company command tour. He's my battalion commander. I've, I've got a pretty good set of skills having been enlisted in force recon. I, I, I actually have the tactical side of this down in space. And I was, I was really very much enjoying imparting this to you know, a, a company of 203 Marines. And then I'd be hopping in and out of trenches. We'd be doing, you know, a live fire range L5 down at, at the, Camp Lejeune, I'll say it properly since the podcast is going to go out to the broader Marine Corps audience. Yeah. It, behind closed doors, it's Lejeune, but we won't get into that here. Um, and then it, it, this this guy, Lieutenant Colonel Dunford, would come walking along and say, hey, uh, it looks like you're having fun down there. Uh, where's the battalion set up their engagement area? So you know, one of the first things I kind of got was uh, this, this idea that there was perhaps another layer of things I should be thinking of that might set me up better for success for my next job. And he was great at finding things that you're good at and sharing 
finding ways to share those with us. He was also great about finding things that uh, perhaps you're a little too focused on squad tactics. You're the darn company commander. You have sergeants and staff sergeants that can be teaching that. How about I pull you into an area where, you know, perhaps your education isn't as, as deep and your knowledge isn't as profound and you know, maybe you can learn something here. Um, so a little bit of a lesson there, but the, the, the key to the presence was, was being there. And, and I, I was lucky. I had eight opportunities and command billets, uh, what the army would call the leadership. Yeah. The Marine Corps calls it command, um, like platoon leader versus platoon commander, same billet. We just refer to it a little differently. And in all of that, uh, if you were my XO, it probably sucked for you. Because if there's admin work to be done, paperwork to be done, um, there are things that a, only a commander can do. And I, I typically would do those. But the rest of it, I was very comfortable delegating and finding ways to make sure my subordinates were competent enough at what they're doing that I could delegate as much of that portion of it. And I could spend as much time out with Marines doing the things Marines do as possible. And that part of presence, I think, was critical to my success in a lot of ways. First of all, it's a whole lot more fun (laughs) than sitting in the back and sitting at a desk. Uh, But I don't know why so many leaders have trouble getting out from behind the desk. Um, Yeah, there's there's risk either way. I I think the greater aspect of risk is staying behind the desk and not seeing what's going on. And there's a separate portion of this talk, George, that I think we need to get to with respect to accountability that that presence will we'll, we'll weigh in on. But the, the second aspect of how leaders should present themselves and be successful is balance. Um, I don't know, George, if you ever had to work with a toxic leader or not, um, or, or just a, a, a megalomaniac overworking, comes in at three o'clock, leaves at 2300 kind of guy, but that, that doesn't help. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll use another uh, another Marine example. Um, I think when when uh, General Pace was the first Marine Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think he had a, a younger daughter who was playing softball games. He would leave the Pentagon and go watch a softball game. I mean, I think that sends a profound message. If if you are so wrapped around the tasks you have at hand that you're spending 18, 19 hours a day doing them, um, and you're, you don't have the perspective and balance to manage it across the, the family, um, the finances, the, the uniform side of it, you're, you're missing something. And you're sending a horrible message to the guys. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll use a, an example of myself that I, I don't want to make myself come across in a, a better light because um, Believe me, we can talk about some of the negative things that I've done, too, to balance it out. But uh, when I took over 1st Marine Special Operations Battalion, I worked directly for a two-star. And one of the first things he did is he gave me this laundry list of things that he says had to be done before our first deployment. I, I literally looked at it, and I crossed half of them off. I scanned it, and I sent it back to him. He's like, who the hell do you think you are, Lieutenant Colonel? You don't cross these things up. Hey, sir, I'm not doing them. 
said, well, you, you don't have that choice. I'll find somebody else to do your job. And our great. Um, first of all, the ones that I've crossed off, if I can get to them, I will. But they're not imperative. At, at some point in time, everything I've crossed off, I think, is less important than than a birthday or an anniversary or a softball game. So we'll get done what has to be done. And there'll be, there'll be days when we're in the field, days on end, weeks on end. But these people also have families. They also have lives. If you can't find that balance. And I was out on a limb. And the interesting thing about Major General Halick is that my, my change of command when I was departing command, he brought that list out and he told everybody in the audience about the story. Say, I've never had anybody do this to me. But I also told him, I said, well, you, you got a short leash. You screw it up, you're done. And his units went out, did great deployments. He accomplished everything he said he would. Um, <laughs> I, I got to admit, there's a more than one night I might have uh, thought I'd overstepped my, my leash with him, but he, he was good. No, he, he allowed that. He gave me the backing, gave me the support. He, he listened to my counteroffer and gave me the latitude. So there's a leadership lesson from where he sat, too. I mean, he's, he gave me an edict, I countered, and he gave his subordinate the latitude to actually go out and execute. So thankful for him for not firing me. <laughs> thankful to him for actually uh, giving me the latitude to get the job done. That That's, that's a great um, segue, because here's, here's a, a, when I teach leadership, uh, we spend some time talking about um, the concept of mission first, troops always, and how does that balance? And, you know, from a military perspective, mission first, troops always, but what's first? Well, obviously the mission. And there are times when the mission will take precedence over your, over your people. And, and, you know, real quick historical example, right? Eisenhower on, uh, June 5th, June 4, right, delays the Normandy invasions one day. So instead of going 4, 5 June, they go 5, 6 June. He knows that they're looking between 75 to 80 percent casualties in the airborne forces, but he gives the go-ahead order because he knew they had to invade, you know, Northwest Europe. Now, as a special agent in charge, my, my division tactical guy comes to me and tells me, hey, sir, you know, we're going down to 1313 Mockingbird Lane doing a search warrant. We're going to lose 10% of the force. No, no, you're not. You know, you're going to come up with a different plan. So there is that balance of mission first, troops always. And we say that our personnel are our most important uh, resource, if you will. But then we we don't do those things that that push back and say no you know we're going to do a lot of this stuff but we're also going to make sure people get home and and get to the quinceañeras and get to the confirmations and do birthdays and and softball games and lacrosse games and and make sure those things happen so um that's an excellent example of 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 where that balance uh you strike it and not all of them do. I, I, I have had leaders that burn themselves into the ground, 
yeah, the, the, the phrase, I think it's you know, both ends of the candle. And I've, I've had leaders who, well, I won't say names, but um, who were so toxic, but they still came off to their superiors as somehow productive. I, I, I've actually been talking to a couple of really good friends of mine about uh, Andy Milburn, for one, who's, who's becoming something of a prolific author. If you haven't read anything about him, it's fantastic. But he started tackling this leadership issue, and we've yet to be able to wait to crack the code on positively identifying toxic leaders at an earlier age before they um, become destructive. But if you're taking somebody that has that effect on people. And you, you, by the time you get them to Colonel one star, two star, three star, the, the damage he's doing beneath him, uh, it, it can be immeasurable. But heck, I, I came out of Somalia in 1995 um, with the battalion commander, third battalion, first Marines at the time, 50% of the officers left the Marine Corps because of this guy's, I mean, we're talking captains, First lieutenants, lieutenants. Wow. Right. So the good leadership obviously can influence a lot of people in a positive way. Bad leadership, though, sadly, seems to be able to influence far more. Uh, but on your note about Ike and D-Day, um, i throw in a little anecdote. Uh, you remember the story, George, of when the message was delivered to George C. Marshall, where they were on a flurry. The, the, the invasion's begun. The invasion's begun. They go running out there to his house. I think it was some hour outside Fairfax. And he was digging up his roses and tended garden. And he's like, yeah, you have to come in. You have to come in. The invasion's begun. And he looks up at this courier and Ike's got it. There's nothing I can do for him now. He goes back to tending his garden. I mean, <laughs> yeah. my, my, my blood pressure just thinking about it is, is amazing. But what other response should you have? I mean, knowing when to keep your hands off the reins and what things are no longer in your control, influence what you can and weigh in when you can. Otherwise, you know, step back. Not an easy thing to do when your name is the responsible officer for Absolutely. a thousand people and $25 million of equipment. Absolutely. Hey, uh, Neil, I remember when I had just, I was just promoted to, uh, Lieutenant Colonel and I was looking for some mentorship and guidance. So I reached out for you and it, 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 it was something to the effect of focus on the balance as you're describing here. And, and you talked about how you would religiously hold these, I don't know if it was like Thursday night uh meetings that that people could sort of blow off steam and have conversations and um and it allowed you to address your folks and issues that they may have uh, i created an avenue and it was it had slight variations to different commands um I, I created a channel for people to have uh an informal a way to informally get to the boss without having to go through yeah, staff sergeant, gunny, then the first lieutenant, then the captain. They're, yeah. Sometimes people need to be heard, and they and they didn't need 
Now, it, granted, the Marine Corps has a formal process by which any individual can get to a commanding officer with an issue. But again, it's a formal, and that in and of itself leaves a lot of people not willing to do it. So one variation that you're referring to, um, yeah, I would I would let people know. It's like, I, I'm going to be at this club, and anybody wants to come to the Wagon Wheel in San Clemente, uh, I'll be there Thursday night, and I'll have a tab. If you want to sit down and have a beer with me, we'll talk about the week. We'll talk about the month. We'll talk about the training plan. Um, let me know what's on your mind. Um, that, that took a different flavor, let's see, by when I was a colonel at Marsoc and in command of the schoolhouse. Um, I actually had this box, um, Chaos. You've probably heard it from Mattis, but yeah, you know, it's uh, people could put a note in. Um, sometimes I would get like a 17 page <laughs> paper. I mean, no kidding. I had one guy that was such a prolific thinker and, and I think he had a master's degree in philosophy and he's a gunnery research. Wow. How come we haven't found, you know, a, a more constructive Avenue for your intellect and your talent, but he was so good at what he did, but needed an avenue. So yeah, just needed a way to, Connect, and that's part of the presence thing, right? Is that I mean, just showing up and standing there and looking good in your uniform, and that, that I don't—that's a simplistic way to define presence, and that's not what I mean by it. You know, being there, uh, you actually have to be contributing when when necessary. Um, you also need to know when your presence is stifling good things. Um, I got out, and I mean, if it's if one unit was doing well i mean, maybe i spent 30 seconds with them maybe a different unit i'd show up and you know what i need to spend a few hours here but you, the more reps you have under the belt the, the more you pay attention to what's going on around you and we have a, a phrase here it's also called like inspect what you expect and vice versa um you get a pretty good feel for what what things are going well if you're sitting behind the desk uh you do not have your fingers on the pulse of a command. And a perfect example is this this Marine Corps mantra used to be like Thursday night, we will field day. So you know, all training will cease because you have to be back in the barracks by Thursday so that they can pretty up their rooms. And then on Friday morning, senior leadership of the every unit is going to go through rooms. That is a really stupid way to do business. Um, and the only way I know is because I showed up Monday morning and did an inspection one day. I found a still in my barracks. I'm like, so from the time that we did field day Thursday night, Friday morning inspection, in 72 hours, they had a functioning step. Well, because they knew next inspection was going to be. <laughs> so I'm not suggesting that leadership is going out and pulling sneaky little moves on the guys. But yeah, you want to see the true nature of the Marines and what's really going on? Yeah, you gotta be a little unpredictable. Just uh, let me follow up with this, and this is out of respect for uh, for Pete, who's did I say he's on vacation in Southern California? Uh, <laughs> he likes to, he he likes to ask our our guests, uh, referencing Machiavelli, uh, is it better to be feared or loved? So I'll throw that out to you in the context of what you've just described. I disagree with both of those. And I, the Marines will follow you to hell if, in either regard if they think you're going to bring them back alive. <laughs> I'd rather be thought of as competent. Uh, 
beard is a horrible tool for leadership, in my opinion. Uh, and, and George and I could probably go around this. And the uh, the beautiful thing about martial arts is that uh, it, it, it does help take care of your ego very quickly because there's always somebody bigger, faster, stronger, better trained, higher ranking, knows more. Um, it's, it's a, it's a journey that doesn't have a destination per se is the, the end goal is just to improve. Oh, so for leadership, I, I liked it. If Marines recognized that I knew what the hell I was doing. Uh, I don't know that the love was a critical component. I do know that there is no doubt that the friendship and trust I developed with Certain individuals definitely transcended to that. Um, the fear thing, I, 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 part of me kind of despises that word from a leadership standpoint, but part of me also recognizes that, um, and fear is a bad word, people needed to understand that there are consequences to incompetence. There are consequences to lack of integrity or character flaws. There are consequences. and. You know, they were going to be held accountable for those things. And I, I don't want people to fear that. But, you know, if, if you're doing the right thing, you're, you know, you, if making mistakes is fine. Um, mistakes of, uh, uh, that by virtue of trying to do something you're, you've not done before and expanding your portfolio, fine. Uh, the substantive, flaws of character that you willingly chose to do that had nothing to do with competence in your job. Those, those are a little harder to acknowledge. So it's a little bit of a stray from the, the straight up fear or love, but uh, I think I actually have a copy of the prints sitting around here, but um, I'm going to choose the middle ground on that well, one. Nice job. Thanks for that response. Neil, uh, um, along that that same line, um, the where would you put the or what's your opinion on the continuing um, the continuing need for the development of ethics in leadership? I would put it earlier in their training. And it's an interesting dynamic that we've seen at West Point, Citadel, Naval Academy. And I think the Naval Academy currently has the best model. Um, Colonel Rick, pardon me, Captain Rick Rubel, Navy retired up there, has, has taken over their leadership training. And, and one of the things I found as professor of Naval Science is that if you're your ethics class comes your spring semester, your senior year. And okay, so they've gone through seven semesters already, and we're at the point now where we're going to teach them what right and wrong are. And <laughs> it makes no sense to me. And in as much as some of you are out there probably scratching your head saying, why is this even an issue? Well, not everybody had the same walk of life. Uh, for instance, we know for a fact that a lot of people, uh, by virtue of their upbringing, I mean, they had no choice but to lie cheat or steal to get out of the circumstances where they were in 
and you know the the human nature to try to find a way to improve one's lot in life or get out of a horrible, sometimes horrifying situation. I, I am not judging, but when they show up on my doorstep within the military system or things like you know, integrity, loyalty, honesty, what's right and wrong needs to be clearly delineated. And, and it isn't. So not everybody's showing up on the same sheet of music. And I do know that at the Citadel and at, at the West Point, they've had some challenges with honor violations and it's a one and done. Whereas what Rick Rubel did is he kind of built a spectrum of, I think, seven different categories of of ethics violations. And first of all, he took the curriculum. And I, after he did this, I, I fought unsuccessfully with uh, the Naval Education Training Command to, to do the same thing, but move ethics to your first year. And let's, let's lay it down early on, what the expectations are, what, what right looks like as we define it in the military. And then if you make mistakes, we have hopefully degrees, tools to which we can uh, help you understand the error and, and keep you in the system. Because some of these kids are immensely talented. They just came from really messed up circumstances and we don't want to lose them. But if you wait until the senior year for them to make a mistake, there's, there's no opportunity to correct it. Um, and so I think the overall system for ethics can, uh, can, is continuous and, and needs to continue to be big uh, from early age on. Now, what I don't understand is why we seem to have so many commanding officers being relieved on a regular basis for ethics issues. And in my ethics class at the Citadel over the course of uh, three years, we uh, made it easy discussion as I would just put a new picture up on the wall. Here's another one. And Fat Leonard happened while I was a professor in naval science. So, we had plenty of fodder to talk about. I mean, there's plenty of good examples out there too, but unfortunately, the the bad examples do give you a lot of material to work with. To ed- attempt to educate people. Yeah, yeah. It's when when you look at the number of senior and and flag officers in all the services that have been relieved for. Um, ethical violations or moral violations uh, yeah. versus those we fired for tactical incompetence, it's, it's, it's not a good ratio. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know. So let me ask term, you this. Yeah. And, and I know what I think about it because I, I, I had the opportunity to study it at length. But um, one of the things we discussed in our ethics class was when some of these very senior people had an issue, it, the the classes would in, initially be fairly 50-50. And then uh, in terms of half the class would think, well, that person, the, uh, the as the rank got to him and the responsibilities got to him, the hubris got to him. This is a late developing character flaw. And then half the class would be, well, no, this is just a guy that got through for 30, 40 years, and then eventually the character flaw manifested itself, but it was always there. Um, by the time we start parsing out a discussion, that that balance shifted. Um, just curious if you have any thoughts on the, the nature of human nature, and whether there's 
people all of a sudden one day wake up and they have a, a character flaw they didn't have before, or was it always there? You know, uh, that's a super interesting uh, question. And here's, and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to give it the exact answer because everybody's in every, everybody's unique. Right. But I think what happens along the way um, that I, that I can say I've seen is, you know, when we're young, um, you know, I believed everybody joined the army um, and joined law enforcement for the exact same reasons I did, right? There was this, I, I was going to be part of something bigger than me. I was going to, you know, make the world safe for democracy, save us from communist insurgency. The Soviets were never going to come over uh, the George Washington Bridge as long as I was leaning forward in a fighting position. But it's not, right? All the brothers aren't valiant. All the sisters aren't virtuous. Um, despite the fact that we wish uh, they were. But what I, what I'm going to, some of it's hubris, uh, some of it's ego, right? But I think a lot of it is, it comes down to a loss of remembering what their true purpose is um, in serving the Constitution and, and serving those people above, but also below them in the chain of command. And once they lose that sense of purpose, that sense of what I owe to those uh, to, to below me, as well as those to my left and right and above, that's where I think we start to see people take advantage of the system, people take advantage of their subordinates and and they stray in that way so uh, you know at one point there's a pretty important book that's out there that everybody seems to put a lot of faith in it says you know there were four people on the planet at one point we wound up with a 25 percent murder rate that was domestic related so have have human beings changed that much over the course of time i don't know but but I, I I would propose or surmise that a lot of those ethical failures are they may be failures of character, but I think they lose that sense of understanding their purpose and their role. But that that sounds good. I don't know that I ever teased that out of that class. You, you obviously significantly more senior than having 22 year old kids, but there's probably something in there where that's missing our, our command courses. So when you get screened for 05 command, you go to a commander's course. When you get screened for 06 command, you go to an 06 commander's course. Or in my case, I went to four because <laughs> I'd have to go to the Marine Corps one and then go to the SOCOM one as an 05 battalion commander in SOCOM, I'd still have to go to the Marine Corps course. And then I do the same thing for the Marine Corps. So what was missing though, is where's that recalibration, that rebluing of, hey guys, I mean, maybe we should be taking guys back to square one with an ethics primer on, you know, like maybe we need a moral compass reset for you guys. I mean, and most of these guys show up with their wives. Um, I don't know. I, Ray, sorry, I didn't mean to take us down a rabbit hole on that one. I think it's, uh, it is a challenge in the military today. 
because it's so prevalent uh, for commanders. It's not restricted to just Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, Navy's having a huge problem. I think I saw a couple articles this week on Air Force as well. Yep. yep. Uh, not good. In fact, it's not limited to senior ranks by any stretch of the imagination. I just saw one out here in Virginia Beach today, a young enlisted guy and his wife, um, 30 years each for for doing a PPP fraud. I mean, got created dozens of false accounts and built the government of millions. Wow. <clears throat> Yeah. Wow. Hey, Neil, I have uh, one final question. We we're almost on about, actually we are, we just hit an hour here. So one, one final question. Oh, no, no. I've got 30 minutes. One question. I got 30 minutes to answer. You, right? you can take your time. <laughs> I, I got all the time in the world. I'm not in vacation in Southern California. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> he's going to kill me. Who was who, who that? Oh, that's, yeah, that's yeah, right. He's going to kill me right now. When he listens to this, I'm in trouble. Um, you've, you've had a great opportunity over the years to mold young Marines. You've been at the Citadel with, uh, what, what, what do you call them at the Citadel? The, uh, they're not recruits. What are they? Students? Cadets? I'm sorry. I'll be in trouble for that one, too. Um, no. What? Knobs, if they're in the first year. Uh, uh, what what three books should they be reading? Uh, I, I shouldn't say they, but looking in, as you're developing future leaders, what are those three books that folks should be reading, these aspiring leaders? I would start with Ethics of Command, because <laughs> that seems to be the one we've been talking about. Um, interesting is that I would choose different books uh, based on service. I don't think there's one. I have a uh, something of a of a notoriety, I suppose, that uh, my contributions to virtually every command I've had has been a library and a bar. Um, so I think those two things are are intricately linked, and I think they are essential. Uh, so I know we're not supposed to be doing this whole glamorization of alcohol thing, but. Uh, it, so my contribution to my battalion was a library and a bar. My, my command at Marsoc, in fact, the bar we built at Marsoc is of such a scope that the commanding general uses it to host his two and three star soirees. Um, and we, uh, we recently lost one heck of a, a Marsoc warrior and his wife donated his entire keg. He was a, a master ruler and, and everything to the uh, the library. We call it the library up there, and that's built. Wow. And then the same thing at the Citadel. Uh, so contributions. Uh, so if you're going to be a Marine, I- I'm going to I'm going to throw out a very controversial one right off the bat. Get the message to Garcia, and mm. there are people rolling over right now listening to this because it is the worst possible book you could ever give anybody. In fact, uh, the staff NCO community in the Marine Corps was so outraged after, despite the fact that it had been on the Commandant's reading list for 70 years, that uh, a couple of years ago, they, they petitioned to have it removed. Uh, so, message to Garcia is a wonderful story about giving a guy very, very little information to go on and saying, go find this guy. We think he's in Cuba, maybe. Go find him, give him this message. 
Well, he does. And the idea in the Marine Corps when it originally came out was, let's create this idea that we're going to accomplish a mission at all costs. And that in and of itself is what prompted the outrage after several years. Yeah, basically, we you got a PME a year on this dang book. Eventually, enough people got sick of doing a PME on this book that they, they rebelled. But the, the true crux of it is if you analyzed it a little bit more and you discussed it a little bit more, you would have figured out very quickly all of the risks of a young leader in giving a really vague order to somebody. How many things could go on? Now, put yourself in an urban environment with women and children in the streets of Mogadishu and giving no guidance to Lance Corporals, Corporals, and Sergeants and wondering what could possibly go wrong. So I think the utility of the book is in the fact that there are flaws and consequences associated with ambiguity and, and vagueness. Um, so I, I actually would, would start with one that has recently been removed from, uh, from there. And then, and then it, everything else I would do would be very specific to an individual's MOS. If you are going to be a communicator, here are some books you need to read. If you're going to be a reconnaissance Marine, yeah, you aren't reading three books. You had better pick up every one of Doc Norton's Vietnam era reconnaissance Marine. You, you want to talk about, you know, guys who went further, did more with less. Um, we have certain luxuries now, the ability to reach back and resources and have them delivered to us in ways that nobody could have ever imagined 50 years ago. But so the other books would definitely be predicated upon your specific niche. I mean, if you're going to be a, a, a surface warfare officer, you don't know who Rickover is and you haven't read about Admiral Rickover. I mean, heck, my, I currently live in Cape Charles, Virginia, and my electrician was an E7 in the Admiral Rickover Navy. I mean, met him several wow. times. Um, yeah. Uh, so you need to know your profession. And then, then, so one book would be basic leadership. One book would be something particular to your skill set. And then one book would be, what's the next step up for you? I mean, I, literally, I had a meeting this morning at uh, NATO headquarters. And I walked out of there with, with uh, three books. Yeah. To, to read. I, I, I've got a, a small contract with them. I'm, I'm sitting down with a Turkish colonel, a, a French lieutenant colonel, and like, have you read Burn In yet? No, I haven't read Burn In. Have you read Ghost Fleet yet? No, I mean, I, I, I got like, in the next, before I sit down with them again next week, I'm gonna, gonna go get these books. Oh, wait, the, if these books are making an impression on our senior international officers, um, evidently they had Pete Sanger in for a leadership uh, a, a virtual a PME, and it was profound on them. So, uh, I don't. I'm not going to give you three titles, um, Ray. What I will do instead is I will send you an Excel spreadsheet with 8,000 book titles. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm you not will. kidding. Yes, In fact, uh, yes. you can you can sort this. Uh, Nate Lauterbach, um, one of my mentees at one time, and I would probably call him. My, one of my mentors now, I mean, a young kid I found when he was a first lieutenant, those 
far surpassed me professionally and intellectually, but he put together this spreadsheet and you can literally sort it by which volume shows up the most times. Uh, so if you go across 23 different war colleges, top level school, middle level school, to include ICAP, um, the, the Eisenhower School at uh, McNair, yeah, which book shows up the most times? Uh, Art of War, Sun Tzu. 23 times. I mean, you could sort this thing and parse it any, anyway. You want to look at just the Air Force recommendations? Every book they recommend. I mean, it, it's, it's a fascinating. So first and foremost, the answer to your question is read. You had better be reading. And I wouldn't limit it to your profession. Um, I'd say 70% of what I read before I got in the military was science fiction, fantasy, but I still had about 30% history. I would say once I got in, Probably 70% of what I was reading was, was military um, for the first 10 years. I'd say my next 10 years, it was probably 50-50 military and economics, um, scientific, something. And I'm going to have to start studying again because today I got told that uh, the next disrupted technology we want to look at is uh, quantum. Like, well... I majored in Spanish. There's a reason I didn't take any lab sciences. The reason it took me 10 years to get out of college. And now all of a sudden you want Neil Shuley's very uh, archaic brain to try to absorb something with respect to quantum mechanics. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the knowledge never stops, but find a way to make it enjoyable or otherwise you're going to suffer. But uh, so anyway, that, that third book I was hinting at though, had, uh, had better be, something that's going to set you up for success at your next job. So anyway, long-winded answer to your question. I didn't take full 30 minutes. That was nine minutes, 43 seconds. <laughs> Neil, final question, because all of us um, belong to the society of people who used to be somebody. Um, <laughs> no, we know, we know what those are called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you know when it's time to go? If you've done it right, it's obvious. Um, absolutely. The, uh, the circumstances for us, um, even though I, I was at over 30 years, I, I could have still done another 10 just because of my my prior enlisted time. My clock was nowhere near running out. You can do 30 years as an officer unless you pick up general. You can do 30 years as an enlisted unless you're a senior E9 and get a waiver. Uh, but if you were a hybrid, a Mustang, uh, your, your clock doesn't run out like that. Um, when I got to the Citadel, I was taking a break from almost a 17 year run in special operations. And, and, uh, my wife had a brain tumor and uh, called, called the monitor, said, find a replacement. And they said, well, wait a minute. Well, you can't leave now. You're not going to have any trouble finding somebody to come to Charleston, first of all. But no, I mean, for me, it was the, the military never trumped the family. Um, and it never, never been a discussion point. It was always, Hey, you know, um, here, here's what the jobs are if I retire now. And then the Marine Corps would say, hey, here's command. I'm like, ooh, I guess we're staying in for another couple of years. Um, now, nah, okay, probably a good time to retire. And then they'd say, oh, here's three years in Stuttgart. Who's going to say no to that? Uh, so my run 
of just really good opportunities and assignments. Just, I mean, they weren't all hunky dory. They weren't all bliss, but I had this consecutive run that just kept on going. And if, if Christy hadn't gotten sick, I'd probably still be in uniform now. So um, we joke. Uh, I had 33 years in, she had 20. So she was not eligible re- to, to retire until 2017. So she is 100% cancer free and fine. But uh, awesome. yeah, it was a blinding, obvious decision for us and didn't take any, any consideration whatsoever. Excellent. Good. Well, sir, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to get to know you and uh, looking forward to, to continuing this conversation later. So uh, thanks. Thank you, George. And, and hopefully, Ray, out of, out of the hour and 15 minutes we've been here, you, you can get a two, three good minutes out of it. <laughs> Neil Shuley, hell of a job. I know it's taken us a long time to get you on here. I'm so glad that uh, it happened. Uh, perseverance counts, right? It's so my thank you. Um, thank you for pursuing because the the reason we hadn't done this yet was all on me. Uh, I'm, I'm headed back to Senegal You're a busy guy. in a couple weeks. Yep. I'm back to another month in Somalia. You made this happen, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. We're going to get this out ASAP. Um, folks, uh, there's several places you could find us uh the rffactor.com uh we have a substack with, uh, of the same name the rffactor.substack.com we're on youtube apple podcast uh certainly spotify and it's all about getting the so word Ray, out here from folks like neil on your site uh can people that come to your site ask questions uh, of the guys that were on the podcast? Yes, they can. Um, it, they could do it through the Substack. They could do it through uh, the the website as well. Uh, so, yes. Okay. Well, if anybody has questions, I look forward to, to seeing those. Neil, can't thank you enough for that as well. So, All right, guys. Uh, <laughs> thank you, sir. Till the next time, we'll have to visit you in your library. And uh, Oh, please. Yes. Look forward is, to it. Would there be, right, take care is, wait, would judo and swimming be involved with that too? If you want to meet me in Citadel, we can knock out the trifecta. <laughs> we'll do uh so I'm in the middle of the January concept two rowing challenge right now. I'm about 600,000 meters in since the first of January. So we can row, then we'll hit the pool. No, you know what? You might drown. So we better do jujitsu first. Just in case. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. Good night. All right, man. Good night.